0: The so last time I was here uh, and I spoke, and that was it was recorded and then graded by my classmates, and I got a really bad grade. Oh, no. So this time, not being graded, uh, but we'll try to do a little bit better. Um, we'll try to do a little bit, little bit better anyway. So if you could, open up your Bibles to John 1, 35-51. So Scott said I could do anything between Genesis and Revelation, and uh, we're doing a, a study with the young adults on John, and so I said, great, I've already got something. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of double up and read adapt what I have I uh, kind of have a, you know a short a difficult schedule with school and doing stuff with the church and everything so um, I think this is a really great passage and a passage that, that tells us or it, it should tell us a little bit about Jesus and his character and our relationship with him in a chaotic world today I think most of you guys would agree that we live in a pretty crazy world there's many things that can grip us right that kind of can have a a hold on us emotionally. For many of us, relationships with other people are gripping, right? Our relationships with other people, the people that we love, the people that we spend time with, they grip our emotions, they affect our, they've affected our past, they affect us now, and they affect us in the future, right? Especially spouses and children and uh, grandkids, friends, those, those people all affect us at a deep level. Sometimes I think if we're honest, Money grips us, right? Because we don't know if there's enough of it, or it kind of becomes a security blanket or something that we can look to that we think is going to bring us security that can help us sleep at night. Or perhaps money grips us because right now, there's probably three or four men in the audience thinking about the new truck they want, right? I mean, I know that's where I find my mind sometimes when I'm, you know, listening to somebody speak, if we're being honest. But we think about the things that we'd like to have, right? There are a million hobbies, too, that can grip our emotions, I, my wife knows this. Sometimes when I'm watching NASCAR, or I'm watching football or basketball. Sometimes those sports grip me so much that after watching a football game I didn't play, I feel like I played that football game, right? I feel exhausted because I've been pulled in emotionally. Sometimes we find ourselves watching maybe our favorite season on, on cable or on Netflix, and we watch through seasons at a time, right, because it's gripping. We want to see what happens in the next episode. Uh, or perhaps a big one, TV just grips us because... We watch the news, and we always see that it's just a constant cycle of bad things happening, um, shootings, the growing drug problem, everything else in our country that just doesn't seem like it's ever going to get remedied, and that can grip us in a fearful way. And I think even there's, there's good things, too, that can grip us. Not Not all things that grip us, that pull us in, that we experience are bad. Because we put a lot of time and emotional energy into church, right? I know that especially like over the past couple weeks, it feels like I'm always exhausted. I'm always uh, here every night. And the, but it feels good when we volunteer, right? It feels good to be invested and to give back to the church. And that's like a really good thing. And God's created us to be able to enjoy serving and being a part of the church. But let me just pose this question before we read the passage tonight. I, I just simply want to ask, does Jesus grip your life, right? All these other things pull us in on a weekly basis, but are you experiencing Him in a tangible way, just like you experience all these other things in your life. John 1, 35 to 51 teaches us that believing in Jesus should be a real experience that grips the lives of believers and not simply an abstract idea. That's the first blank there. Uh, teaches us that believing in Jesus should be a real experience that grips the lives of believers and not simply an abstract idea. Sorry, I got allergies. Read along with me in John 1, verses 35-51, through 51, if you're already there. And I kind of switch back and forth a little bit. Sometimes I read in the NLT, especially the whole passage, because it's a little bit easier to understand. Sometimes, especially uh, as I kind of go through the passage and we break it down, I'll use the ESV, because it's a little bit more literal, and it, it kind of helps in analyzing it better. So if you're wondering, like, why is he using my translation and then not using my translation, it's not because I... Like made up some alternate translation on my own I'm just switching between a couple translations The following day John was again standing with two of his disciples As Jesus walked by John looked at him and declared Look, there is the Lamb of God When John's two disciples heard this They followed Jesus Jesus looked around and saw them following What do you want, he asked them They replied, Rabbi Which means teacher, where are you staying Come and see, he said It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, your name is Simon, son of John. But you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, "'Come, follow me.' Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, "'We have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth.' "'Nazareth!' exclaimed Nathanael. "'Can anything good come from Nazareth?' Come and see for yourself, Philip replied. As they approached, Jesus said, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. Or I think in ESV, a man in whom there is no deceit. How do you know about me, Nathanael asked. Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus asked him, do you believe this just because I told you I had seen you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, I tell you the truth, you will all see heaven opened and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. So if you remember, in the previous chunk of text to this, in John one twenty nine to 29-34, John the Baptist identifies Jesus as, as the Savior to, to watching crowds. He sees Jesus coming towards him and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? It's kind of a reference to the Passover Lamb in the Old Testament where the you know the Israelites smeared the blood of the Lamb on their doorpost and it kept them from death. And in the same way, Jesus is that sacrificial Lamb that saves us from death, It saves us from our sins, right? It might also remind us of the story of Abraham or, I'm um, a little bit messed up in my mind right now. Abraham and his son, right, where God asked him to go and sacrifice his his son, and God provided a lamb instead of him having to sacrifice his son. So those are the things that I think this is, uh, that we're reminded of in this previous passage. John 1, 29 34 also tells us that part of John the Baptist's mission was to reveal who the Savior was to Israel. Part of his mission was not just baptizing and calling men to repentance, but specifically to point out to everybody else who Jesus was. In the passage that we're looking at tonight, John the Baptist once again sees Jesus the very next afternoon, so it's the day after he's first identified Jesus as the Lamb of God. And he tells two of his disciples again that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He says, look, the Lamb of God. This causes two of John the Baptist's disciples who are with him to follow after Jesus. One of these disciples is Andrew, who is Peter's brother, and the other one is unnamed. More than likely, the unnamed disciple in this passage is none other than John the Apostle, the writer of this Gospel. John never refers to himself in the third person uh, anywhere in his Gospel, but he often refers to himself, in my opinion, as the beloved disciple or the unnamed disciple. And one of the reasons why I think that this is, in fact, John the Apostle is not only would it be weird if I walked around calling myself mad all the time, uh, because we just don't talk in the third person, but there's an eyewitness account, right? He, whoever is writing this knows what time these things happened. He knows that it's the next day after John the Baptist first identified Jesus. So there's an eyewitness testimony by the man who wrote it, and of course that man is John. I think he's simply choosing not to refer to himself. When John the Baptist, he he tells his disciples that Jesus is the Lamb of God, he most likely knew that he would would lose them, he would lose his disciples. However, this didn't matter to John as long as God was glorified, as long as Jesus was glorified, he didn't care about how significant his little ministry was. And I think this is a great example that all of us as believers can imitate, right? An example of humility, Um, an example of it doesn't matter what's going on at church and our ministries, Uh, At home or at work, as long as God is glorified, it doesn't matter what happens to me and to my little kingdom. When Jesus sees the disciples of John the Baptist now following him, he asks them, what do you want? It's a piercing question that I think is not only intended for his disciples, but for us as we read this, as we read John's gospel, what is it that we're looking for when we come to this Jesus? John's disciples want to know more about Jesus. John's disciples want a private place to speak with Jesus. And then spend time with him. So they ask him, teacher, where are you staying? They could have just, you know, asked him a few questions out in public, kind of like you would in passing if you just saw somebody out in in public, an acquaintance. Uh, But that's not what they want. They don't want a, a passing, superficial relationship. They want to know where Jesus is staying so that they can come in with him and have meaningful conversations and get to know this man who's supposed to be the Messiah. Jesus responds by telling them to come and see for themselves where he is staying. And these these men come and they they spend the rest of the day with Jesus from 4 p.m. onwards. Perhaps some people think late into the evening or maybe even through the evening. We don't know. And some some of your Bibles, it'll probably say instead of uh, 4 p.m., it'll say the 10th hour. And that's because the Jewish day started at 6 a.m. So 10 hours from 6 a.m. is 4 p.m. I think my math's a little bit better than my spelling, right? Okay. I think that's right. These men spent the rest of the day at the place where Jesus was staying in the same way that we would spend an afternoon with a close friend, right? Somebody that that we really desired to spend time with, that we enjoyed. Um, And he didn't just teach these men. I think it's important to know, I think sometimes we view Jesus as a great teacher, a guy that just kind of walked around and, and people kind of followed him as he went and he kind of stood on the mountaintops. And he gave like the, greatest, like the greatest hits ever, like the greatest sermons ever. And that was, that was kind of what his ministry was. It was like the greatest hits ever, the greatest miracles, the greatest sermons, and everything else. And he did do that. He did perform great miracles. He did perform or, or, or speak great sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but he also, we see here, desired really close fellowship with his, with his disciples and gave them the kind of fellowship that we might get from a close mentor. Andrew found his brother Peter, and many of you know who Peter is. He's perhaps the most well-known of all disciples, maybe even more well-known than John. Andrew gave personal testimony to his brother that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. He was a long-awaited Savior. Andrew's testimony and witness are what introduced Peter to Jesus. It's a theme in a section of men telling other men about Jesus, and that brings them, uh, that brings them to the Savior, to know, to know him personally. As some of you might know, when Peter is introduced to Jesus for the first time, his name was what? It wasn't Peter. It was Simon, right? It is during the first meeting with Jesus uh, that Jesus tells Simon that his name will be eventually changed to Peter, or Cephas, which means rock. And of course, we all know, it's pretty common knowledge, that Peter wasn't anything like a rock at this time, was he? He was the guy that always kind of like stuck his foot in his mouth, kind of like when I'm talking to my wife. Um He was the guy who betrayed Jesus three times, but this wasn't about what Peter was now, right? It's what he would become through the Holy Spirit and through uh, God's work in his life and through him seeing Jesus' ministry. The next day, Jesus goes from Bethany to Galilee where he finds Philip, who is from the same hometown as Andrew and Peter. Just as Andrew witnessed to Peter and brought him to Jesus, Philip also then witnesses to Nathaniel, uh, another disciple. So, this is where it gets a little bit technical. It's impossible to know. I kind of like to track everything down to make sure, fully understand what's going on in the passage. It's impossible to know exactly who Nathaniel was. Because he's not mentioned anywhere else in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. He's only mentioned here and he's in John 1 and in John 21, but he's not mentioned in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It is somewhat possible that he's not any of the disciples, uh, but I find that unlikely. It's very likely that Nathanael and the disciple named Bartholomew are the same person. I think that's the most convincing argument for who Nathanael is. Because not only is Bartholomew a proper name, it means uh, son of Ptolemy. So it's basically like a last name or an identifier or somebody just, you know, it's, he's this person's son. That's what Bartholomew means. It's not a proper name. But also, Bartholomew and Matthew, Mark, and Luke is always mentioned in relation to Philip. When there's lists of disciples... We always find Philip's name right next to Bartholomew's, and that's where we find them here. We find Nathaniel with Philip. So it only seems natural that, you know, here we see them paired in this gospel, they're paired in the other gospels. We know Bar- Bartholomew is, is really a last name, it's a, a family name, it's a, a family identifier. It seems logical to conclude that this is probably the same person as Bartholomew in the other gospels. Philip tells Nathaniel that he has found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And I think it's important to notice that Philip likely doesn't have a full understanding of who Jesus was at this point. Philip knows, right, he says that Jesus is the Savior that the Old Testament pointed to, Moses and the prophets pointed to. However, he doesn't fully understand the significance of Jesus. Philip thinks that Jesus is a Savior with an earthly father from the town of Nazareth. He doesn't realize that Jesus is the unique Son of God, right? Descended from heaven, who is God himself. Nathaniel responds uh, to Philip skeptically and asks, Can anything good come from Nazareth? And depending on what commentary you want to read, there are 50 different answers for why he says this. Um, one of the reasons might just be because he's one of the, pe- the kind of person that speaks his mind. We, we learn that later. But I think one explanation for why he says can anything good come from Nazareth might be because Micah five two had predicted that this Israel's savior, savior king would come from Bethlehem, right? And if he knows this, then perhaps he's thinking, well, Nazareth is not Bethlehem, so he can't be the savior. Another, another possibility is that since Nazareth was simply a very small country town... Uh, backwater, so to speak, like a backwater in South Carolina or Florida, it's the kind of place where you wouldn't expect like, a king or a president or certainly the savior of the world to come from, right? So it seems to be just an exclamation of, there's no way that this savior could come from this, this small town, and perhaps it's even, it's, it's not Bethlehem, it's not the place where the Messiah was predicted to come from. Despite his skepticism, Nathaniel accepts Philip's invitation to come and see who Jesus is for himself. I think it's important to note at this point, and we just we just mentioned that Philip did not have a full understanding of who Jesus was when he told Nathaniel to come and see Jesus for himself. I think when we when we witness to other people, at least when I do, I feel like I have to have like a, a theological essay written out, or like I have to go rip a couple pages out of one of my textbooks and like bring it with me to share the gospel, right? And like somehow. I put way too much emphasis on myself to where like, I think, well, if I didn't say this or that, right, like I kind of ruined it, right? But it, we learn here that it's not really about us. Uh, we often we make it too much about ourselves and what we see, but in fact, our weakness, the things that we don't know, our incomplete picture is what glorifies God, right? Because he does the work in bringing people to him and not us. And I think this is what's happening here. Philip has an incomplete picture of who Jesus is, yet Nathaniel still comes and sees who Jesus is for himself because Obviously, uh, God is working on his heart. Nathanael is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He comes and he sees who Jesus is for himself, and Jesus declares, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. A very interesting note, uh, no deceit. This is a little bit of a play on words that uh, hopefully I don't get this too messed up. In a second, we're going to introduce the theme of, of Genesis 28, Jacob's Ladder. This theme starts to be introduced here. The idea of Jacob's ladder, Jesus is already introducing here when he says, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Because remember what Jacob's name was, uh, was changed to. Just like Peter's name was changed, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, right? After he wrestled with God. And before that, Jacob meant usurper, but not only that, but God God had called Jacob at one point a deceiver. He had specifically called Jacob or said that he was a deceitful man. So in a sense, uh, well, I guess it's, so. It's not Jesus. Sorry, I misfocused, It's no, it is Jesus. I'm getting myself mixed up. So when Jesus says an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit, essentially what he's he's saying is not only is Nathaniel an honest man or a true Israelite, but he's I think in a sense uh, what he's getting at is that this theme of, of Jacob's ladder that's being brought in, he's saying uh, a true Israelite, or it's a true Israel in whom there's no Jacob. Does that make sense? He's saying that this guy is not Jacob before he came to, came to know God, uh, when he was a deceiver, when he was a usurper, when he was a, a bad guy, but he's a, he's a true man of Israel. Does that make sense? And he's kind of introducing this this theme that's going to be picked up on later, which is the character Jacob in the Old Testament. So I'm sorry I kind of messed that up a little bit, but I think that's really cool. Uh, How Jesus is introducing that, and I think how John the Apostle wants us to see right here that this theme of Jacob is being introduced, and that Nathaniel is kind of, in a sense, the prototypical believer, so to speak. I think John wants us, as we read this, to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of Nathaniel, a man who's not deceitful, a man who's not a deceiver like Jacob, but a man who's had a, a heart change and is a true Israelite or a true believer. Does that make sense? Despite his, uh, So, Nathaniel is a true Israelite, and he's seeking after God with a pure heart. He's not a religious hypocrite who says one thing and does another. We look at some people and we say they, uh, they talk a the talk, but they don't walk the walk, right? Like I said, this is the kind of guy that talked the talk and walked the walk. He was certainly a genuine believer. Since Jesus didn't know Nathaniel... And they didn't have the internet at this point, right? It's not because Jesus was like following up with him on the internet, creeping on him on Facebook, or like looking up his public records online. Since Jesus didn't know Nathaniel, Nathaniel wonders why Jesus knows so much about him. And of course we know that Jesus uh, explains that he knows so much about Nathaniel because he saw him sitting under the fig tree earlier in the day. Jesus tells Nathaniel, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. This is very close to a statement that Jesus makes later in John, in John 8:58, which reveals his deity. He says, "Before Abraham was, I am." So, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Before Abraham was, I am. It's a very uh, similar statement to Jesus and his his divinity, his uh, pre—I guess you would call it his pre-existence or his preeminence. What Nathaniel was doing under or thinking under the fig tree isn't clear. There's all sorts of scholars that try to say, like, well, he's under a fig tree, and a fig tree represents this, and so this is like what he was thinking about or doing, or this is what he represents. But what, what he's thinking about is not clear. Um, what is clear is simply that Jesus saw Nathaniel under the fig tree because he is God, right? That is why Nathaniel explains, Rabbi, you were the son of God, the king of Israel. Like Andrew, Nathanael doesn't fully realize what he's saying when he refers to Jesus as the Son of God. And that might kind of come as a little bit of a surprise. It's a pretty clear statement, right? When he calls him the Son of God. To us, that only means one thing. It means equal with God. But again, just like Philip, Nathanael is speaking a little bit better than he knows. The term Son of God was another way of referring to Jesus as a long-awaited Savior King. Because the Psalms, if you remember some of the Psalms, like Psalm 2 refer to the coming king from the line of David as God's son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So even though they made this connection that the Davidic king was God's son even called him uh, God's son, saying the son of God was just another way of saying king. They they didn't, uh, it's clear that Nathanael and the the other disciples didn't recognize at this point that Jesus was the co-equal, co-eternal, unique son of God, right? That's why if if you read the rest of the this gospel, if you read the other gospels, that's why the disciples are often so confused even though they make really great statements like at the beginning of the gospel. It's because they don't quite realize what they're saying yet. What they're saying is true and we can understand it to be true from, from our perspective, but from their perspective, from his perspective, perspective, he didn't quite understand what was going on yet. Jesus promises that Nathanael would see greater things than Jesus' divine insight. Nathanael would see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending and descending. On the Son of Man. When Jesus tells Nathaniel that he will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, he's referencing the story of Jacob's ladder, which I horribly introduced earlier. Right? Um, a true Israelite in whom there's no Jacob. In Genesis 28, 10 through 15, Jacob, who was Abraham's grandson, had a dream, right? He was uh, in the wilderness, lays his head down on a rock, goes to sleep, and Genesis 28.12 says that Jacob saw, this is a direct quote, a stairway that reached from earth up to heaven. And he saw the angels of God going up and down on the stairway. In John 1.51, Jesus tells Nathanael that he'll see the angels of God ascending and descending, not on a stairway, right? Jacob sees the angels of God ascending and descending on a stairway, but Jesus tells Nathanael that he'll see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, Right? So what does this mean? There's many different ways, again, people can understand this. And even as we think about angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, we, what immediately comes to mind is the angels that were there uh, at Jesus' birth, the angels that were there at, uh, after Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and they came and ministered to him, the angels that were present when he rose from the dead at his tomb, and the angels that were present maybe when he ascended up into heaven. But none of these are exact parallels, Right? I think the easiest way to understand what Jesus is saying is that he's the bridge between heaven and earth, right? He's, he's the bridge for, for um, us sinful people to see God's glory and receive God's blessings. I think that is essentially what he's saying in a nutshell. He's the fulfillment of Jacob's dream in Genesis 28, the stairway between heaven and earth that connects us uh, to God, that gives us access to the blessings of God. Simply put, Jesus references Jacob's ladder to tell Nathaniel that he will see God's glory in greater ways as he follows him. the next blank. At the beginning of this passage, I stated that John 1, 35-51 teaches us that believing in Jesus should be a real experience that grips our lives in a tangible way. It's not just a mist or a vapor, something abstract that we just kind of come to church and talk about that can't explain, but affects us and grips us in a tangible way. Way. So, how does this passage encourage us as believers, right? This is kind of talking about uh, just the disciples' initial encounter with Jesus. So, how does this apply directly to us as believers as we think about ourselves and our relationship with Christ, right? I would argue that in John 1 35 51, John the Apostle is recounting the disciples' first experience of Jesus while also encouraging his readers to experience Jesus for themselves. So remember, John, of course, is the author. I started, the, when, I, when I spoke to the young adults, I, my first question, asked questions at the beginning, I said, who wrote the Gospel of John? And they got it right. Um, so <laughs> remember, John the Apostle is the author of this text, but he's, he's doing two things at the same time. He's showing us something that really happened, but the way he is choosing to present it, of course, is divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit to uh, affect us personally and tell us uh, about our lives. It's impossible to read this passage without my headphones falling off, without this microphone falling off. Uh, it's impossible to read this passage without feeling the force of the inv- invitation that John the Apostle is extending to us through this passage. It's still falling off. Uh, through the historical events, it's, it's impossible to miss the inv- invitation he's extending to us. So, here are all the instances in which men are encouraged to come and experience Jesus. And as we think about this forceful language that's being used, this is a lot of the reason why I think this passage is aimed directly at the reader, the person who would come and read John's gospel down through the centuries. In verse 36, John the Baptist tells his two disciples, Behold the Lamb of God. And behold is just a, a fancy word of saying, Hey, take a look at that, right? In verse 38, Jesus asked the two disciples, What do you seek? In verse 39, Jesus tells the two disciples, Come and you will see. In verse 43, Jesus tells Philip, Follow me. In verse 46, Philip says to Nathanael, Come and see. In verse 50, Jesus says to Nathanael, You will see. And in verse 51, Jesus says to Nathanael, Again, You will see. Significantly, and probably most significantly out of all of these references, is in verse 51. When Jesus says, and this is the ESV, that you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, that you is really important. The you there, you will see heaven opened, is uh, the plural form of you in Greek. Uh, that That's a little bit hard for me to understand. Much easier is just to understand he's saying y'all. Right? Or you all. I think some translations, the NLT, I think, has a, a plural you there. I know the ESV does not. But essentially what's being said is, You all, y'all will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is probably talking to maybe uh, disciples that were immediately around him. I mean, we we assume in this conversation that maybe some of the other disciples that had been met are standing around. But even more importantly, John is including us, his readers, in the word y'all. John is inviting us to take on the perspective of Nathaniel. Like I said, he's an example of the genuine seeker of God. He's called an Israelite, a a true Israelite, uh, who has come to Jesus and will see the glory of God for themselves. So we're being invited to to not only read this account, but to come and see God's glory for ourselves. More specifically, I think that John the Apostle wants his readers to know that they can experience Jesus and be gripped by him in four ways. Actually, three ways, but I wrote four. First, our relationship with Jesus should grip our being... Because we spend intentional time with Him. Our relationship with Jesus should grip our being because we spend intentional time with Him. In the same way that we desire, uh, want to be with somebody we love, love spending time with a sport uh, or a hobby or watching the news or our favorite TV show, we should desire to be with Jesus through the avenues that we have to spend time with Christ. Bible, our Bibles, prayer, public worship, Even baptism in the Lord's Supper, we experience Jesus through those. We should not pass over John 1.39 too quickly. He said to them, Jesus said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Jesus invited Andrew and the unnamed disciple, John, to come with him and, like we said before, fellowship with him. During this time, they likely sat with him for hours and asked him many questions. And it's hard to read this, I think it's impossible to read this, without understanding that Jesus had a certain love for them. You don't let somebody come into where you're staying, into your house, and spend hours on and talking to you, unless you're deeply invested and interested in who they are. And, and, and want to, in this, in this case, I think, put your life into them. It's impossible to read this without seeing Jesus' tender love for his disciples. Jesus was not too busy or too important for these normal men. We meet most celebrities Uh, Or most people, if you walked up to them and they were important, and you asked them to come and spend time with you, there's no way they would do that. Jesus, the most important man that ever lived, comes in and spends an afternoon and an evening with these men. Others in John 1, 35-51 are also invited to come and experience Jesus, right? Jesus invites Philip, Philip invites Nathaniel. Simply put, if we desire to come and experience Jesus for ourselves... We will have easy access to him because he desires to be with those who truly seek him. He desires to be with a true Israelite, a true believer, a man that has a pure heart, that truly uh, is looking for the answers or just simply wants to spend time with Him. The same compassionate Jesus who loved his disciples and spent that conversation with them is the one that we experience today. And I, I think here's a good question. I got this from a, a, a commentary. Uh, if Jesus is the good shepherd who we know that uh, in Matthew 18 there's a parable of a lost sheep, right? And there's one sheep that specifically strays away, runs away willingly, and what does the shepherd in the parable do? Yeah, he goes, he leaves the 9 he goes out and, and he seeks that one wayward sheep, and this good shepherd is Jesus. So if he's the man uh, that will go out and, and grab, or go after or seek out the wayward person, then how much more Uh, Will he come and assist the true uh, seeker of God in whom there's no deceit, the true believer, the true person that is hungry and thirsting after Christ, whether they're already a believer or whether they want to experience him for the first time, they're they're truly seeking. Are you maybe in a spiritually dark place this evening? Hopeless, bitter, angry, anxious. I've experienced all those at some point in my life. Uh, Are you spiritually hungry? Do you find that things in this world are not satisfying you, right? The the new cycle gets a little bit old after a while, right? You can only buy so many things for your truck before that seems kind of pointless. If you pull for a really bad team like me and your sporting team constantly loses, we realize that sports are kind of pointless in the end too. When we spend all this energy seeking after these things, we realize in the end it doesn't really bring us any lasting happiness. Are you spiritually thirsty and do do you desire... To have communion with God Himself, Jesus will say later in John's Gospel, He'll say, "I am the light of the world," and He'll say, "I am the bread of life." He also invites whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Right now, springs of living water coming out of him—something that doesn't last for a day or for a moment like a cheap pleasure, but something that uh, truly satisfies our spiritual hunger. Come and see. We should be encouraged to come and see the Son of God for ourselves today, and to to have this light and this hope. This joy and the satisfaction in our lives. Second, our relationship with Jesus should grip our being because we've been seen by Jesus. I think this is really important. A little bit harder to uh, kind of develop and explain, but I think this is a really important part of this passage. Nathaniel was invited to come and see who Jesus was. Ironically, when Nathaniel comes to see Jesus, he finds that he's already been seen by Jesus. Right. He's told, come and see, in verse 46. Uh, Those are the the last words of verse 46. Philip tells Nathanael, come and see. The very next words in verse 47 are Jesus saw, right? He went out thinking he was looking for the Savior. He didn't realize that the Savior had already seen him and knew who he was, right? He calls him a true Israelite. He says, how do you know me? He saw Nathanael sitting under the fig tree when nobody else could, could see something like that other than God himself. This reminded me of a later passage in John, in John four twenty nine, when Jesus runs into the Samaritan woman. She also understands that she has been seen at a very deep level. Remember, Jesus kind of uh, hints at in a, in a very gentle way the immorality of, of her life and brings it up. He knows about her. He knows about her sins. He doesn't come to her uh, harshly. He comes to her tenderly, but he knows, he knows because he is God. Uh, what's inside and the sins that she's committed. And he sees her at a very deep level. And that leads her to exclaim to all the other Samaritan villagers. He says, come and see a man who told me everything I did. Right? Nathaniel says, how do you know me? The Samaritan woman later on says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. And even in this passage too, I think John wants us to think about, uh, if we've read his gospel before and we're familiar with John 4, we're reminded, because of how he uses language in his gospel, and he keeps using come and see, come and see, come and see, come and see here, when we, when we read this, it triggers in our mind, if we're familiar, John 4.29, uh, when, when, when she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. It's that same come and see, that simple come and see where she's witnessing to people, even though at this point she has a very basic understanding, much, much less the understanding that any of us have, and yet she's out witnessing and giving her testimony. Believers should be gripped by Jesus because when they come to Christ, they find that they have already been seen and loved by Him even before they saw Him. That's the next blank there. Believers should be gripped by Jesus because when they come to Christ, they find that they, that they have already been seen and loved by Him even before they saw Him. That's what Ephesians one four tells us, right? It says, even as He chose us in Him for the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless." Blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Here uh, the Samaritan woman says, Come and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Nathaniel asks, How do you know me? Well, we know here in Ephesians 1:4, it's because that if we come and seek Christ. If we come to faith in him, if we're that true person seeking after him, and we put our whole trust and allegiance in Christ, uh, it's because he chose us and loved us before the foundation of the world, right? Scripture tells us that we loved him because he first loved us. As believers, I I think we feel seen in in several ways by Jesus, and we, we come to know that we've been loved and cared for before the foundation of the world. As believers, we feel seen as we look back, and see how God has sovereignly arranged our lives to bring us closer to Christ. We see how God's hand has been at work in our lives and has planned out our steps before us. Many of you probably have like some sort of testimony where maybe you didn't want to go to church one week. Maybe somebody dragged you to church that morning, and that morning your life was completely changed right, by, by the sermon that was being preached. Maybe uh, you know, it's, it's something else. Where God just divinely ordered something, where you came in contact with somebody who witnessed to you. And had you not been in that place, had you not met that person, you wouldn't have come to faith. To faith, Or maybe it's the opposite way around, where God's brought you into contact with people that you share the gospel with. Right place, right time, not an accident. right? We feel seen because we start to realize God has ordered the things in our life that have happened to us. He's ordered the things that are drawing us closer to Christ. As believers, we also feel seen and loved as we read God's Word. God's Word is not just a book that we read like other books, but it's a book that reads our hearts. Uh, one of our young adults actually taught last night, and he gave his testimony. And he said, when I when I picked up the Bible after I became a Christian, it was like this book was explaining all these things that were happening in my heart and my life. And some of you know that, like if you pick up one of the Psalms, and there's a, 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 a psalm in there that completely expresses how you're feeling emotionally, uh, whether it be downcast, whether it be seeking after the Lord and rejoicing in Him. But as we read the Bible, we realize that the, the Bible, uh, as believers, explains our life. It kind of knows uh, exactly, um, exactly describes our, our situation and our heart and what we're going through. Even more than that, we see that we've been seen in a very uncomfortable way, right? When we read God's word, like the Samaritan woman, when we hear uh, preaching sometimes or when we're reading God's word on our own, we become convicted by the Holy Spirit, right? That's, that's another way of being seen. Uh, that's another way of God loving us, right? Because we need to be convicted before we can come to him. But just like the Samaritan woman, we realize we've been seen at a deep level when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our, of our sin when we read God's word. Yet at the same time, God's Word convicts believers that they've exercised faith and that they're God's children. Romans 8.16 says, For His Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we're God's children. That His Spirit, when we read the Word and and we hear it preached and we feel conviction and we feel the need for heart change and we feel the hope and the joy that it brings all through the Holy Spirit... Uh, we're affirmed by the Holy Spirit that we're God's children. That's another way that we're seen and loved by somebody who, uh, by a person, by God, um, who loved us even before we first loved him. Do you know what it is to be gripped by Jesus in your being? Because when you come to him, you find that you've already been seen and loved. It's a great thing. If not, ask God to change that. Seek Jesus who's to have to come in and to have fellowship with you. The great thing is, about point number two is that if you can't identify with point number two or uh, you feel like things are difficult and you don't quite see where you are, you don't quite see how you've been seen in love and God's uh, sovereignly orchestrated the steps of your life, you go back to step one, right? And you keep seeking Christ and you keep seeking after him because like we said in point one, it's Jesus that's desirous uh, for us to to come in and have fellowship with him, right? It's not a case of... Uh, of, well, I guess, it's just, I guess it's just not this for me and it's not going to work out. No, we go back to step one, right? And, and whoever believes in him, right, doesn't perish but has eternal life. Christ is desirous not only of the one lamb that strays, but of the, especially the person who is seeking after him. <clears throat> Finally, our relationship with Jesus should grip our being because we will see greater things. The greater things mentioned in this passage, my favorite favorite part of this entire study, The disciples spent intentional time with Jesus just as we see in this passage. They didn't yet realize, like I said, that they were not only spending time with the Messiah, they knew that. Uh, I think they had some sort of inkling that this is the Messiah or this is the promised son of David in the Old Testament. Uh, But they didn't realize yet that they were with God's unique son. In a sense, I think what John wants us to see in this passage is that these men have been brought to the very gate of heaven. These men are under the same roof with with the Savior. They're spending time with the Savior. Yet, like we said, they don't quite realize it yet, do they? They don't quite realize what's going on. We see it and we think, wow, this would be really great if we could have this kind of, you know, where we could physically see Jesus and spend time with him. But they don't don't quite realize it. They don't realize that he is truly the unique Son of God who is not just, well, who who is the Son of God and is, you know, part of the Trinity who's God himself. And so it is today uh, that we who have come to Christ and have experienced the love of Christ uh, for ourselves will also see the greater things that are promised. And much like the disciples in this passage, I think we often fail to realize that in Jesus we already stand before the very gate of heaven. We look at these guys and we think, uh, why didn't they get it? Like, why couldn't they put the pieces together, right? Like, Jesus is, is uh, he sees Nathaniel under the fig tree. He's obviously divine. When the disciples are kind of fumbling around later in the Gospels and they can't seem to get their act straight, we wonder, what's wrong with these guys, right? Why don't they understand what's really going on here? But I think in a lot of ways, it's the same way for us. Because listen to what the, what the Bible says about where we are already. And I, we fail to realize this all the time where we are already. Ephesians 2.19 says, So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens, along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's holy family. Hebrews 12.24 says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Into to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Not only do we stand before the very gates of heaven in Christ, what these passages are, are telling us is that even when we don't realize it, our position right now in Christ is much greater than we often think of it, right? Kind of like these guys. They don't really know what they're, what they're, what they're dealing with here. They don't really know who they're around. I would say for most of us, we don't walk around with the reality, the reality knowing uh, that we're standing at the gates of heaven, that we've come to Mount Zion, that we've come to the city of the living God already in Christ. I think we fail to live in that reality, and I think if we were to kind of see ourselves from uh, uh, a perspective that, that knew a little bit more, kind of like the disciples, if we if we had a more full understanding of what was going on, it would completely transform our lives. But not only do we stand at the very gates of heaven, but we will see greater things. In John 17, 24, Jesus prays, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Not only are we in a great position already in Christ, if we believe, and that should grip us, that should grip our emotions and our thoughts and our affections, but right here in John seventeen twenty four, Jesus prays for those that would believe through the disciples' witness and the generations after. And he says that his desire was that they, that these people, the believers, would see the glory that God the Father had given him because he loved him before the creation of the world. Isn't that fantastic? That's what we have to look forward to, and that should grip us. Jesus should grip our being, this is the last point, because if we have believed in him, love him, and are growing in our hatred of sin, that's just another way of saying if we're being sanctified, we will see Jesus' glory. Uh, Jesus should grip our being because if we have believed in him, love him, and are growing in hatred of sin, we will see Jesus' glory. Have you experienced Jesus through Bible, prayer, public and private worship, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, all the ways that God has given us to enjoy our Savior? And are are you continuing to do so? The Son of God is desirous to have fellowship with those who truly seek Him. Has God's Spirit testified with your spirit that you are God's child, that He loved you first, and that He set you on a path towards Him, that He's numbered, that He loved you before the foundation of the world? and he's numbered all your steps from here to heaven. If so that you can rest assured that you will see Jesus face to face. If not, then continue to seek after him with all your heart. Jesus promises in Revelation 3.20 that if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this day and for this time together. Uh, we thank you for this example of our Savior. Who loves his people and his desires to spend time with them. Who not only loves his people, but loved them before they first even sought sought him out. We pray that you would help us to have our mindset on heaven. That you would help us to understand where we already are and position uh, with you through our relationship and having all the, the blessings, all the glory that we've already received because of our relationship with Christ. We pray that you would help us to look every day to that greater glory that we can look forward to when we see Jesus face to face. We pray not that we just think about these things and think nice thoughts about them, but that we would be gripped and that it would transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.